High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Well, um, you heard, if you were listening to me joking about Kenny, but even if you weren't, you will have heard that uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, is proposing to uh, force uh, people to leave the country who were actually born in America uh, but are undocumented or illegal. The problem really is that it's the way you feel about it because these um, undocumented born in America, because they were born in America, they are Americans in everything except citizenship. So therefore, they're illegal. The problem for Trump is that Trump's entire message in in the campaign and since he became president is that he is tough on illegals. So therefore, by the lights of Trump uh, forcing these people out of America, deporting them, makes sense. Where I have a problem, I must say, is Barack Obama, who yet again uh, interferes and uh, criticizes the president for the action. Now, my problem with Barack Obama is that if every single error that Barack Obama made in his uh, two terms of office were actually subjected to the same kind of critique that he is now doing uh, for President Trump, Barack Obama might have a very different reputation, but there has always been an attitude that says presidents don't criticize presidents by and large. So uh, would I deport them? No, of course I wouldn't. Uh, most right-thinking people wouldn't, but it's, right, it's interesting. If you go back as far as 2003, uh, and I think Michael McDool was Minister for Justice, there was a major debate because parents of children born in Ireland would be allowed stay. And this led to pregnancy tourism. In other words, you get wife pregnant, wife gets on plane, arrives in Ireland heavily pregnant, has baby, and now parents can stay in Ireland. And MacDool, um, although the child was still entitled to Irish citizenship, uh, attempted to deport everybody. Now, that is really interesting because there are pretty well only two countries in the world uh, where being born in the country gets your citizenship, and those are Ireland and America. If Certainly in Germany, for example, uh, if your parents are German and you're born in Saudi Arabia, you're German. Um, and, and, of course, we've long had this situation that if your parents are Irish and you're born somewhere else, you're Irish. The Irish rugby team has been testament, or the Irish soccer team have been testaments to that forever. So uh, this is a complicated matter, and I just wish Obama would butt out. Uh, and Donald Trump, uh, this isn't actually going to happen. So the people aren't going to be deported, but Trump will say... He's done it. I think listening to the news bulletin this morning, the most depressing thing of all for me, really, was that more breath tests, a half a million of them now, uh, have been discovered as, as fake. Um, you are looking at, and you cannot look at 
a police force now whose morale must be shot. It's interesting. I was down at Electric Picnic on um, uh, Sunday, and and based on the Gardaí who were there, the force now is probably 50-50 men and women. And these are brave men and women who defend us when they are largely unarmed with substandard equipment, and they stand there and they defend us. And they are led, in the great phrase of World War One, the lions are led by donkeys. It is incomprehensible to me how the Commissioner can consistently survive the most appalling scandals in her force. And you have to ask the question, is it because she's a woman? It Does a woman get preferential treatment because the government are scared of firing a woman and then being charged with some kind of gender harassment or something? Because the only commissioners who have actually been fired, stroke resigned, have been men. And I think this woman, and she is a woman, has led a charmed life. It is extraordinary. And this uh, this commissioner and the commissioner's uh, support by this government tells you everything about this government. Uh, this government's approach to almost everything now it touches, homelessness, Lyme disease, uh, law and order, almost every single thing it touches, it makes a horlicks of it. It is quite extraordinary just how bad they are. Are they bad because they are in coalition with a bunch of guys who really uh, have no loyalty to them whatsoever? Are they bad because they are in a minority and they, they're touching the forelock to Fianna Fáil across the aisle? Or are they just bad? Are they just quite simply incapable of governing the country. And I never thought that. I, I mean, in the days of, the awful days of Bertie and terrible days of Hawaii and the indecision of previous governments, I, I never actually thought that they were incapable. And for the first time in my life, man and boy, I actually think they're incapable of doing the job. And the sooner they actually do the job, I mean, well, let me try and give you a couple of ideas I might have about how we could fix it. The first thing is I would ban all ministers, including Taoiseach, from going on radio, television or the media and giving interviews. That's the first thing I'd do. I would say to them, the second thing I would do is I would change their working hours. And I would actually say that we have to, they may well be doing it, I don't know, but they have to show the people that they're into the office every morning at 8 a.m. and they leave every night at 8 p.m., 7 days a week. And then they instruct their civil servants uh, who serve them to work seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. until we solve the, pro the problems. And then finally, we sack a few people. Now, in the old days, you would have shot them, which would have encouraged the others to toe the line. We don't do that anymore. You just sack him. 
And the sooner some people are just sacked for incompetence, then maybe the ordinary citizenry are going to think we're going to walk. Now, I'm joined by a very interesting guest. And it's Noel Sharkey, co-director for the Foundation for Responsible Robotics. Noel, welcome to the program. Hello, good morning. Is it really true that down in Dubai, the taxis are flying around the sky? No, okay. it's not true. <laughs> Is it going to happen? Well, yes, it looks like it. They had plans for a, a Chinese company called Ehang. 184 that were supposed to have them running by July and we're past July now and they haven't started running yet so they're planning the end of the year but just in test for about five years um but it, it, therefore if they're at this point it's it's going to happen sooner rather than later is that right oh definitely i mean you've got um another, they've also hired another company or working with another company a german company called volocopter um, and they're going to have theirs ready for them as well. So it's going to be a competition, I reckon, between the two two companies. Why Dubai? Dubai is trying to be the most um, high-tech country in the world. I mean, they've got the tallest building in the world now, unless somebody's taken over from it since I was last there. Um, also, incredible overcrowding. I mean, I was there. I was there working, and I had a driver to go out in the evening, and I didn't go out in the end after after a day because it took us an hour and a half to get to the shopping mall, twenty minutes down the road. The traffic was that bad, and you can't really walk either because it was fifty degrees. So <laughs> I just stayed in my hotel room and used the cocktail bar. But um, the thing about Dubai, which may well have changed since I was there a number of years ago, was like it was just one massive building site. So presumably that's changed now. The the bulk of the building is is over, is it? Well, there's still building site stuff there, but but the city itself has just transformed. It looks like something from you'd have seen science fiction movies. It's incredible the buildings, floating buildings, every kind of building there. It's stunning. I mean, they've, they've got a lot of money, obviously. Um, uh, to spend so so this whole futuristic thing and you can imagine these uh we've been waiting for flying cars for god knows how long i mean when i was a boy certainly when you were a boy that's what you'd have seen in any science fiction movie isn't it yes but there is one of the things i was thinking about i mean i know you said dubai is very busy and everything but it's still in the middle of the desert i mean there's a big difference i would have thought between trying to have flying taxis in Dubai and have them uh, try them over Fifth Avenue, New New York, no? I don't know. I mean, really? It's, okay, it's in the middle of the desert, but they're not going to go into the desert. They're going to stay in the city. They're city taxis. I mean, I I would be a bit scared to be in one of them. Frankly, I've looked at them. They've got four. The the uh, the the Chinese ones have four little propellers. It's a quadcopter, and you get into it if you're under two hundred and twenty pounds. Um, I would just, if I had a briefcase with me, I'd be tipped over the edge there. Uh, but you get into this. You got a little touch screen. You put tap in your location into the touch screen, and off it goes on its own. So there's nobody driving it. It's just you in there. <laughs> really? Yes. It completely works on its own. It's a, it's a robot taxi. But have they, like in this testing they've done, they've obviously had people flying around, but they, but this is not a commercial entity at this point. Not at this point, no. And it's got an emergency parachute, so if something goes wrong, they will come down slowly. Um, I would be very worried about it, though. I, I, I can't see how it's going to work. 
I can see how, you know, having, the battery, by the way, is 30 minutes it lasts for, and then it needs a two-hour charge. But they're flying at 62 miles an hour. And, you know, think about this. They seem to be thinking, oh, a taxi. But just think when there's a lot of them, say another 10, 15 years, and the sky's full of them, how are they going to schedule that? I mean, what sort of... At the moment, on the ground, you have these roads, and you can clearly see all the road markings. But what's going to happen in the air? You know, how many of these are going to be? Are they going to be at different layers? What height are they going to be flying? Because you've got helicopters at the 500-foot level, and above that, you've got planes. So they've got to be beneath that. And everybody's talking about having things like these Amazon or, or drone deliveries, and they're going to have their own skyway. So you're going to put these things in among that. And suppose there's thousands and thousands of these, which there would be, of course, as soon as they catch on, because nobody wants to be stuck in the traffic on the ground. Um, then what? I mean, how are you going to stop them crashing into each other at 62 miles an hour? I, do, I just can't. It, it befuddles me. Well, it, I mean, my car is sort of, if, if it's primarily when I'm beeping, but I notice if a pedestrian walks in front of us, uh, in, on the street, it also goes beep, beep. So it, it has, uh, it doesn't do anything other than That's beep, right, beep. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't break or it doesn't do anything like that, but we do have cars. I think Volvo have a car in which it actually breaks, um, if there's something close to you in That's front right. of you. So presumably they can do that with air taxis, but, well, sure, but it's coming at that speed in the air and and having to... It's not just a matter of braking, though. You don't brake in the air, do you? But where are you they going to land? I mean, you can't, they don't stop. You can't, you can't put brakes on in the air. Uh, no, think I about it. no, I'm thinking as you speak <laughs> that I'm not... Uh, <laughs> you can apply your brakes. I mean, you could have a, a, a backward jet or something on them, but I don't think they've got but, not with that amount of battery power. Yeah, but as a listener actually reminds me, is there not, is this with the Amazon drone coming visiting to deliver my, my book and uh, the air taxi coming to the house to deliver uh, my wife and then there's something else. I mean, isn't there going to be incredible noise pollution from all this? I mean, I actually, I'm like the listener. I don't want all these things flying over my house. I don't want them flying over mine either. I mean, people are really, people have been really concerned. There was a lot of news about the Amazon uh, delivery drone service starting in London. They've done a couple of deliveries in the UK and Oxfordshire, way out of nowhere. But once they start coming in the tens, hundreds of thousands, they'll be buzzing like anything. They'll be blocking off the light. And what about all the bird population, butterflies, wildlife? You know, this is just... Uh, with with all the and then all these taxis, we're okay. not going to see the sun at all, are we? I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a, it's not being thought through. I think people are just thinking, oh, let's get this great technology, but they're not really thinking, right. you know, what's going to happen when we get it. All right, my guest is Noel Sharkey, who's co-director of the Foundation for Responsible Robotics, because the Dubaians, or whatever they're called in Dubai, um, are, are trialing air taxis, 62 miles an hour, no driver. Uh, you get into it and punch in your, uh, your Google Maps and it'll get you. But who, you know, one of the things in Ireland, for instance, no, yes. when we're building a tunnel or we own a house or whatever, our laws are quite complicated as to who owns the land under our house or under yes. our street or whatever. Who owns the air above us? Is that is that open season for anybody? 
No, I believe, I'm not really sure my facts here, but I did look into this at one point because you, because there's a law in California that uh, drones cannot fly over your property without your permission. And they give a height at which your property ends. So your property has a height as well as a, a width and depth. I can't remember how, how high it was, but it wasn't that high. It was like five or 600 feet, something like that. Not terribly high. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. The co-director of the Foundation for Responsible Robotics, uh, Noel Sharkey, on the issue Guard A. The Guard are correct. Breath tests mostly are rubbish. 0.05 is not responsible for accidents for 99% of the public. Go after the real heavy, dangerous drinkers and fast drivers that cause accidents. <laughs> That's not actually the question at all. The question is that the Guard are doing fake tests. What are we going to do about it? And I, I like the listener who says, Guardi who submitted false information are guilty of a crime against us all. Uh, and what we are going to see, certainly, uh, in, in, in the courts are going to be jammed, uh, with people, uh, taking cases for uh, dismissal from their jobs, perhaps, or unable to work because they went over a certain number of points, or a whole pile of stuff and then um, on the issue John Limerick has certain sympathy with government politicians. The government is apparently ineffective because the permanent public service is utterly incapable of reacting in an effective can-do way to the multiple crises conf- confronting it. Um, I think they can, you say. I, uh, and, and the thing is, there's a thing called motivation, organization, commitment, planning, strategy, all these kind of words that are bandied about if you actually use them, it works. And wartime proves that. Wartime is the greatest example of where governments work, whether they work for good in the case of Britain and America or they work for ill in the case of Germany or Russia. It doesn't matter. They work. And they are worked because there is an imperative to do something. There is no imperative to do something with our crisis, which is we are at war whilst at peace. And make no mistake about that. And what I'd like to talk about next is what would you do if you were diagnosed with the early onset of Alzheimer's and you were just 50? High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by Professor Brian Lawler, Chairman of Dementia Understand Together campaign, and Ronan Smith, who has been diagnosed with uh, early onset Alzheimer's. Um, first of all, Ronan, welcome to the programme. I'm going to get back to you in a minute. Professor Lawler, come to you first. What is the Understand Together campaign, first of all? This is a campaign which has been supported by the HSC and Atlantic Philanthropies. It's part of uh, the one of the main one of the six elements of the National Dementia Strategy, which was launched in 2014. And the purpose of this campaign really is to raise awareness and improve the understanding about dementia here in Ireland. Well, now, it's interesting I thought about awareness. I thought every single one of us, and I hope I won't offend Ronan, I thought every single one of us was terrified of not being able to remember our name. So, therefore, that uh, there's probably not a family in Ireland in some way hasn't been touched by it by a loved one or relative or whatever. You're absolutely right, George. Uh, we did a survey prior to this campaign, and we yeah. found that 
about half the people in Ireland on average will, will know somebody with dementia. Yeah. But, but when you actually dig down a little bit deeper, you find that people have a very, very poor understanding of what dementia is, what the causes are, and what, what are the potential treatments and what we need to do and try to try and help people with dementia and their caregivers. Well, you're absolutely right, because despite this terror, and I'm doing Sudoku every day and all this sort of stuff, Roland, forgive me making bad jokes about Alzheimer's well, go ahead. and dementia, but it, it's absolutely true. I mean, people of my age worry about that all the time, but I have no idea. I mean, here I am at, at, the, at an age and everything, but I don't know why, how treatment, anything. So you might expand on that a bit. Well, you're absolutely right in terms of fear. I mean, what we find is that people really fear getting Alzheimer's, getting dementia, particularly if you're over the age of 50. Under the age of 50, people fear getting cancer, but over 50, it's really about the fear of dementia. And when you talk to people, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of stigma about this condition. But a lot of this is down to poor understanding, poor awareness. And when we ask people about whether they understood about potentially addressing modifiable risk factors to decrease your risk of developing dementia. People in Ireland really didn't know very much about that. And we do know now that there is a lot that can be done, particularly earlier in in life. In advance? Early in life or particularly in uh, midlife. Okay. That things that you can do, improving your exercise level, control of blood pressure, you know, a lot of social engagement, brain type activities, these may actually decrease we don't know for sure, but they may decrease your risk of developing dementia later on in life. It's interesting you mentioned, and my guest, by the way, is Professor Brian Lawler, and you mentioned two um, conditions in the same sentence. You said cancer and you said dementia. There is one other issue, of course, is that if you have cancer, the state is prepared to care for you until you die. If you have Alzheimer's stroke dementia, the state isn't prepared to care for you. You or your relatives have to care for you. With the big problem we have with dementia are the numbers. The biggest risk factor for getting dementia is age. And, you know, we have a, a rising demographic. Uh, people are living longer, so more and more people are developing dementia. This is and this put, does put a huge burden or strain on the care system. And what we have to do is think about, A, ways that we may be able to prevent or decrease the risk of people getting dementia at a population level. But also we need to look at innovative ways of trying to care for people with dementia. Uh, the model of people going into nursing homes, you know, uh, and... Uh, with with dementia is not going to work. We really have to look at at ways and uh, care 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 pathways and ways strategies to actually care for people with, in in a more innovative way okay. in the community. Now this month we're actually trying to raise awareness because this month is about Alzheimer's and its awareness. Isn't that right? It's, this month is all about raising awareness about dementia, Alzheimer's disease being the most common cause of dementia. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Ron Smith is with me, who was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Now, I actually felt very embarrassed there, Ron, because here am I, the professor and I, calmly talking about dementia and Alzheimer's and everything. And you're sitting in the studio and you have to listen to us discuss you like almost like something in a test tube, for which I apologize, okay? But I couldn't find any other way of doing it. Do tell me. Uh, what early onset Alzheimer's is and how it affects you? Well, the early onset is uh, just to categorise, really, yeah, yeah. Um, to break it down because um, you know onset can be at different ages. Uh, and the um, problems for early onset people is 
or that some of the problems can be to do with employment and issues like that, where if you, you know, if you have the concerns and you do get diagnosed uh, and then you wish to speak to your employer or your partner in business or whatever, um, people can react very, you know, in a knee jerk response and say, oh, my God, we need to let you go. Terribly sorry. It's all over. But interesting about the employer, because you're a former actor, right? Mm. Now, if there's one thing an actor needs, it's a memory. And actually, Sir Michael Gambon, I'm just reading, is in this position that it's increasingly difficult for him to play roles because he can't remember the lines. Yeah. So presumably that was... That, is that where it, for you well, first no, I, kind I'd, of saw it? No, I'd, no, I'd moved out of acting oh, uh, over the years. I became involved in, um, you know, managing, producing, okay. etc. So, so where did the actor. first signs come from? Well, they would have come in 2009. Right. I was actually eight concerned. Years. So yeah. I'm, I'm sort of eight years in now in terms okay. of my own um, condition. And I would have, you know, gone back in, 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 in my mind and I keep diaries and whatever. So I was able to kind of track this yeah. from 2009. So uh, I also had the, you know, the, the uh, advantage of having cared for my father in his illness with Alzheimer's disease. Similar. Absolutely. And, the you know, the experience I had there meant that when I began to be concerned for myself, I went straight for diagnosis. I said, I need to address this. Okay, now in the issue of diagnosis, Professor Brian Lawler is with me, and I may sort of go back to him at odd times. Um, you can actually be diagnosed with this. In other words, they can do some kind of a test, yeah. and, and somebody in a white coat and a stethoscope says to you, you've yeah. got... Well, it's interesting you should say that, George, because... You know, the reason I was um, so, uh, I suppose, prompt about going for diagnosis yeah. was because I'd had the experience of my father. Sure. So I was kind of going with some evidence. But, uh, to it. you know, for people listening particularly, and as Professor Lawrence said earlier on, half the population has some relationship with dementia, stroke, Alzheimer's. Was this that you couldn't remember something, couldn't remember where you're supposed to be next week or whatever it is? Was it... It's, it is as mechanical as that, ultimately. Right. And what I suppose, um, you know, is very specific is that the the impact in your memory system is mostly in short-term memory. Yeah. So, you know, in a working life, that's obviously a big issue because yeah. people tell you, you know, I want this by 12 and maybe an hour or two later you say what time what time was that that I agreed to yeah. do that now, so sorry, it's Ronan, very specific do you mind holding on a minute because I want you, you know the thing when you meet a doctor in a train or anywhere you immediately ask for a personal diagnosis <laughs> so I'm going to get a personal diagnosis from Professor Laura interesting what Rowan's talk about short term right mm. so what about me and all my mates who have no idea who won the 1500 metres in the London Olympics but can give you all 12 starters of the 1956 Olympics won by Ronnie Delaney. Now, are we all, therefore, because of this short-term inability, are we all seeing early signs or what? No, there's a difference between what you're describing and me and what Ronan is describing. In Alzheimer's disease, particularly where it's presenting with memory impairment, yeah. what the person has problems with short-term memory and recall this gets progressively worse over time okay. and does interfere with day-to-day -day functioning. What, what you're describing more is, is a retrieval issue. I think if you work at it hard, you probably will be able to pull out some of the information. Or okay. if, whereas where, with Alzheimer's disease, the person, you know, even with prompts and cues, even though it isn't going to, it isn't going to benefit so much. And ultimately, there is some 
erosion of loss of function. So I think you, you, you do want to differentiate between normal age-associated cognitive changes, which is primarily a slowing of processing speed, speed of retrieval, okay. compared to the accuracy of recall that... Um, uh, that Ronan is describing. All right, we're, we're talking uh, to Ronan Smith, who has been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, and then Professor Brian Lawler, uh, who is crucially involved and chairman of Dementia Understand Together campaign, because this month is all about understanding. Ronan, that was an interesting point, because as I said, every single one of my friends can't remember yesterday, but I can remember, you know, 1956. And and Professor Lawrence explained that. But forgive me also, because I haven't actually been touched by it, do you know, in my family or anything like that. So I'm, I'm quite ignorant, really, do you know? And so I'm searching for where I get information. And there's a, there's a famous Swedish fictional detective called Wallander, right? So Wallander gets it, okay? And he starts putting notes on the table or on the wall about things he has to do. Now, is that fictional or is that how you, you attempt to cope with lack of memory loss? Yeah, I mean, I, for myself now, I'm continuing to do some professional work. Right. Uh, but I'm also doing quite a lot of advocacy work with the okay. ASI. So I keep myself very busy and active. And in that, um, you know, there's diary keeping and appointments mm. and all of this kind of stuff going on, of course. And, uh, you know, I need to be very disciplined. I use my mobile phone a lot. I put okay. stuff on, you know, I put everything into my calendar, you know, of what I'm doing that day and time and all of that. And I watch my phone pretty much yeah. every five minutes. I'm, I'm, I'm varying between, obviously, I, I don't want to make this a tearful interview because it's a very factual interview and you're great to talk to. But, like, to be just sort of crass for a second... Don't people come up to you all the time and say, ah, oh, Ron, you're looking great and, you know, there's bugger all wrong with you. Yeah. You must get a lot well, of that I, because sitting yeah. in the studio, yeah. there's no sense that mm. you have an issue. Well, I mean, the, the most uh, extreme example of that experience for me is when I'm actually attending as part of an ASI, yeah. you know, uh, mission into the Dáil Éireann to meet with the all-party committee on yeah. dementia. And uh, I contribute something and I just inevitably get the comment, are you sure you have this? So, you know, it's easy to appear not to have the problem. The problem I'm managing at the moment, so I'm out in the world still. Yeah. And this is a big important point for me to, to share with people that, you know, what we really need to do is quite simple, which is to absolutely kill and remove the stigma and the fear. We need to get people talking about it easily, freely right. okay. uh, and openly. Well, I talk about it all the time, I must say, uh, on radio or otherwise, because I think, as Professor Lawler again has talked, this is a demographic thing. There's going to be more and more people. Uh, 08, do you mind me asking how old you were in 08 when you got the diagnosis? Uh, well, I didn't get the diagnosis okay. in 08. It was 09 when I identified myself. Okay. Uh, because of my experience, with my but father. you're about some, what? I, at that I, I, point, what age was I? It would have been in um, what mathematics at this hour of the morning? Yes, um, I'm just testing. Yeah, fifty-two. Okay, now I don't know how to phrase this, but one of the problems that doctors always have when a guy comes into the surgery for whatever reason, they say, "Listen, George, sorry about this, but you've got." Okay. Now, what they said to you was, you've got early onset Alzheimer's, 
which is an incurable condition. And presumably, and I'm not going to go to Professor Lawley yet, but I'm going to talk to you as a sufferer, if that's the word. Um, it's, it's progressive, isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. So how do you cope then? How do you cope mentally with saying, I'm going to be worse tomorrow or next week or next year or whatever? How do you cope with that? Well, I couldn't do that. Well, I think you, possibly you might if you were actually really faced with it because, mm. you know, when you're faced with a real problem, you tend to engage better with that than the okay. problem you think you might have. I know I have a problem, so I just get down and do it. What what I do is, I suppose, is um, that I, you know, I focus on what it is I can do to slow the progression okay. in order to give time for maybe treatments or, you know, better treatments to emerge. Okay. Now, my guest, of course, is Ron Smith, who's been diagnosed, as you heard him say, at 52 with early onset Alzheimer's. Now, he's coped with that for effectively the last decade. It's it's Dementia Understand Together campaign this month, and chairing that is another guest here, Professor Brian Lawler. There's an interesting thing about this, surely, Professor Lawler, um, that my fear is not so much getting it, uh, but that I'm going to be in a nursing home and that there's going to be somebody stuffing rice pudding down my throat and I don't want the rice pudding. And we have seen graphic stuff of secret cameras and stories and everything else of nursing homes where this happens. Isn't that the real scare about this, that somebody thinks if I get cancer, I can cope with the pain, they'll give me a pill, but they can't do that for me in this case? Well, I think there's been a lot of tragedy narratives about dementia and people, right. all, you know, what you see in the media and what people talk about and hear about really is, is, is the downside of dementia. Okay. And that's it. It's a very serious condition and does affect people in, in different ways. Everybody's different, as Ronan was saying. And, and, and it, it, there's a huge amount of sadness and, su- and suffering. Yeah. But there is, there, is, there is an upside and there are positive things as well. And, and I think part of this campaign is about emphasizing the positive and really what, pe- what things can do, what people what things people can do. You said yourself, if I were to get it, I, you know, you, you, you would be very fearful, very upset, very anxious. But think about the people around you. If they responded in a more positive way, in a supportive way, with kindness and with support, that would make a huge difference. If our society was dealing but with But are you suggesting, Professor Lord, are you actually suggesting that people are, not all, but some are actually re- reacting negatively to somebody who has dementia stroke yeah, Alzheimer's. Can I, can I, can I yeah. just yeah, come please, in here? Ronan, I yeah. actually think that it's actually not surprising because it's a frightening thing. People are frightened. People yeah. are, you know, tend to feel an awkwardness, a discomfiture in dealing with it, in talking about it. And the problem is that unless we overcome that and we help others to overcome it, there will remain a stigma. And stigma is not a helpful contribution to any condition. So, I mean, I feel very strongly that the Understand Together campaign is actually achieving something. I think I can see that happening. It's not great. The momentum is steady and it's building and it's going in the right direction. And I think it's really important that people talk about it. Well, um, it's a it's a campaign that will run, no doubt, this month under the chairmanship of my guest, Professor Brian Lawler. It's Dementia Understand Together. I couldn't imagine, I must say, a better advocate than my guest, Ronan Smith. Uh, Ronan, uh, keep up the good work. Can I just give one important message please to don't. anybody who's listening and is interested? Please, please look at the website. It's www.understandtogether, all one word. 
www.ie.ie. There's huge information there, huge okay. support, and it's well worth visiting. Understandtogether.ie is the place to go. Your thoughts to 53106 cost 30 cents. You might just let me know about Professor Lawler's point. Would you be quite negative um, if you met somebody with this condition? My thanks to my guests. It's High Noon with George. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. You were listening uh, to Andrea Gilligan there. Despite the weather of 19 degrees, she was able to concentrate on the fact that millions and millions of tests uh, are being delivered by the Gardaí that are actually false. Now, the Tornishta, formerly Minister for Justice Francis Fitzgerald, has said that the emergence of an extra half a million of false tests was deeply disturbing. Surprise, surprise. Now, that's really one. I mean, what would a minister say, you know? Isn't it odd or how strange or whatever? It's deeply disturbing. Well, security analyst Declan Parr joins me. Declan, welcome to the program. Thank you, George. Good to be on with you. Now, um, before we get to the Guardi, I was thinking you were coming on, and I said, what does your man Power know about the Guards SFA? And then I said, he does know a lot about the Army. So I was going to ask you, what would happen if the 4th Infantry Division delivered a half a million false tests about anything? What would happen in the Army? Well, there'd be an investigation and uh, somebody would be charged. Probably quite a number of people would be charged uh, under um, a whole variety of different um, devices that you could charge people with under the Defence Act and Defence Force regulations. Um, yeah, having said that, just to put things into perspective, uh, I've worked closely with the guards down through the years. Both there was a slight element of tongue-in-cheek. I know, too. I know. And what I wanted to say was that, in a way, while there's a lot of similarities in that they're both a structured, disciplined force, there's also an element of, of apples and oranges. Uh, the militaries, by definition, are much more structured and have a much tighter um, sense of control and discipline uh, pre- um, precisely because their day-to-day role is about exercise of lethal force. A police force uh, has a more uh, slightly more relaxed type of uh, codes of conduct okay. and discipline. And that's to allow the the, the officers of a police force to engage with the public. Now, All right. Now, hold on, Dan. Just stop there now, Declan, for a minute. Uh, you know, there's a fair amount of lethal force, increasing, in fact, increasing amount of lethal force in the Garda Shia corner. Um, you know, in fact, it's hard to say anymore that we are an unarmed police force because, of course, so many Garda actually do carry guns. But the thing here is, though, that I, I, my, the point I made right at the beginning talking to you, my slight tongue-in-cheek about you're not a guard or a soldier, but but the thing is, they are two arms, no, they are two arms of the state, Declan, that are responsible for the security of the state in some shape or form, for the prevention of, uh, and, and, and armies have been used for this, notably in the north of Ireland, for the prevention of civil disorder. So they are similar, and they are also both based on a hierarchical promotion structure and discipline. 
So how can an organization, now we cut to the chase, how can an organization continue to hold a trust to the people when they are delivering millions of false tests? Well, I agree. It's a, it, the damage that this does to the image of the Gardaí is, is severe, I would say. Um, I, I should be uh, quite clear and quite frank. In my own opinion, I'm not going to lose a whole ton of sleep about uh, the doctoring of, of tests to do with um, you know, breathalysers. But it's indicative to me, and this is where I will lose sleep, so to speak, uh, is that there is a bit of a breakdown in the chain of command, and particularly with the relationship between uh, junior ranking Gardaí uh, and uh, the, more, the, the greater mass of senior management. And the, you know, that, that would concern me and should concern any citizen. Because the question is, why, why were guards doing this? And I would argued that guards were doing that because they felt that they were overworked and under-resourced, that the lack of resources over the last number of years, the diminution of resources, meant that individual guards in small stations had to make judgment calls on what's more important this evening, uh, what do I focus on, I've got a myriad of different types of tasks, and that they started to uh, to to make internal cutbacks themselves, so to speak, and uh, an easy way to keep the uh, senior brass off your back was to falsify records and things that you deemed not to be terribly important so you could focus on things that you did deem to be important. Yeah, but and we shouldn't have let, and then Garda Khan, a senior management, shouldn't have let such a, a situation unfold. But it, what it also demonstrates, surely, that if the guard, the rank-and-file guard thought it was a good idea to fake the test, your point, that he faked them so he could get on with more important work, it, it actually also means that the rank-and-file guard are judged by their superior officers simply on the number of breath tests they do or the number of speeding fines, speeding uh, convictions they get. So therefore, what a lot of people believe is that the Guardi are out on the street uh, just trying to uh, shoot uh, fish in a barrel in order to tick boxes on statistical returns rather than their primary job, which is to protect the citizenry. Well, now you're into an interesting point, George, which I, I would largely agree with uh, with your assessment. The, the reality is a lot of Garda, uh, individual Garda, at the Garda rank, you know, at, with the sergeant and below, uh, would share your opinion that they feel that they're being uh, overburdened with uh, raising statistics, that they're expected to become box tickers. And they're, in effect, throwing that back in the face of the bureaucrats in uniform up in Dublin right. in the Phoenix Park. They would feel that their relationship with the public is more important than an enhanced percentage of people being paid right. for drunk driving or whatever else. All right, I'm sorry for going to the movies, but whenever things of this pop up, a movie <laughs> pops into my head as well. And there's a famous one with David Niven. It's called Carrington VC. He was a VC, yeah. and he took cash out of the petty cash box in the mess or whatever, right? The yeah. second thing is that we know, or third thing, is that in Temple Moor, uh, they were fiddling the, the cash box. So, yeah. I mean, how can... I, I have no doubt, surely in any organization, not just the Army and the Guardi, in any business, like there are, I think there are three former directors of Tesco, uh, 
in court uh, currently for faking the profit figures at Tesco. We have bankers in jail because they faked the figures in banks. Now, there is no difference whatsoever in what the Gardaí are doing. They're, fit, they're committing fraud. Of, of paperwork fraud in the shape of tests and, and actual financial fraud. And the, the chief executive can sit there at her desk. Well, you've made a bit of a jump there now, George. I, I would agree that in the great scheme of things, the falsification of uh, documentation about the breath testing is a form of fraud. But I don't think it's anywhere near in the same class as what you've talked about there with regards to uh, misappropriation of funding in Temple Moore. Hold on. Are you some kind of, hold on. Are you some kind of born again Catholic that <laughs> you're, you're kind of saying this is venal sins and mortal sins? Is that what you're actually suggesting to me? Well, that, I, I, that, that's the, exactly, the, that is exactly what I'm suggesting. Well, I that's you horse manure, Declan. That's horse manure. No, no, George, George, hold on. You have to take into it, look, like crime in general. There is petty crime and there is serious crime. And I would, uh, you know, deal with the falsification of the breadth results in a different way to dealing with the misappropriation uh, of funding for Temple Moore. Having said that, can I interject with it just another? You were comparing the army and the, the Gardaí there. Right. Uh, just on an individual basis, listeners might be interested in this. When I was a cadet, it was something that you could get uh, booted out for if you if a check bounced. If you, you had to pay your mess bill each month. Now, MESPA didn't, it wasn't for the huge amounts of drink we were consuming, certainly not as cadets at that stage uh, during training. We didn't get access to it. But for foodstuffs and various other um, miscellaneous items, you had, a, you had to pay a MESPA. If you're checked, and this continued on into life uh, for commission officers, if your MESPA bounced, if you, you know, bounced a check, it was something you could be just cashiered out of the army for as a commission officer, just to bring that linked to Carrington VC, because that was a, a similar story. You had misappropriated mess funds. I think they're probably one of the few institutions where somebody could lose their job over a bounced check or a, a bad management of funding. But what I'm saying is, when you jump back to the Gardaí, the Templemore issue seemed to be have something, something where senior uh, elements of the management of the college were left unchecked in the management of funding that wasn't theirs. When I say theirs, I don't mean personally. I mean even the colleges. It was the, uh, the monies were uh, to be accrued to the Department of Justice, you know, things like rental of land, other bits and pieces. And this was a breakdown from the very top within justice, within the management of the Gardaí, down to the bottom. And I would say the failure starts, in a way, in how people are inculcated in duties and roles. Now, uh, hold a minute now, Declan. Hold a minute, like with your newfound Catholicism <laughs> and mortal and venal saints. Christian we're, evangelicalism. Yeah, we're talking about the Gardaíshia Corner here. Like we're not talking about a bank or an insurance company or, God forbid, the cadet school. We are talking about the Gardaíshia Corner. The word it means, uh, guardians of the peace, in effect. Doesn't it? Now, hold a minute here. There is, I don't know, because nobody knows, but there is a possibility 
that people may well have got uh, 12 points or 10 points or whatever based on some fraudulent kind of paperwork or people uh, got lost their jobs. Like, there is no doubt in my mind that there is going to be, the courts are going to be jammed with people because they do it anyway. They say, I didn't get the fine in the post or any old excuses used. It's going to be jammed with people saying this is a false test or whatever. This is this is chaos. Well, it has the potential to be, but there is another aspect that could be just as chaotic, and this is what I would caution against. I would caution against a witch hunt to um, to uh, pillory or indeed convict uh, with a low-ranking guardy in respect of this, because what will happen then is, and I'm quoting a guard I know quite well uh, who had a conversation with me about this, is we'll get the guards we deserve. What does that mean? It means that individual guardy who already feel irritated with some of the, uh, the, the box-ticking exercises that are being pushed upon them will start to enforce the law in a, a zero-tolerance way. Uh, as has happened in certain divisions around the country where uh, district officers have ordered their, their officers to enforce without reservation. Now, you might say that's exactly how it should be enforced. And then the Irish state, the Irish people have, and their police have long had a culture where the police officer had discretion and people expected it, expected that an officer would use common sense. Uh, this is something that we could well but be dismantling uh, inadvertently on. in our desire to want All to right. uh, get to the bottom of things. A long, long time ago, I went to a lecture in the Irish Management Institute. There used to be a great gig. It was called the Management Conference down Killarney. You went down for a weekend and it was eating and drinking and you were pretending <laughs> that you were doing <laughs> nice a bit of work. Yeah, you, you get were, all the good gigs. Yeah, you were pretending you were doing a bit of work, you know. And, but there was a, and they'd have guest lectures. And I always remember this fellow from England. I can't remember his name, but I can remember him quite clearly. And he said, no company ever went bust because of the employees. Companies go bust because of the management. And yeah. what we have now is we have an organization, the Gardaí Corner, that is a busted flush because of the management. Well, yes, uh, it certainly has been dented. I mean, I think that the... You You've kind of put your finger on one part of what I feel is the essence of this. There is a dissonance. There is a breakdown between the trust that should be there between junior ranks and senior ranks in Garda Shia And that needs to be repaired uh, and made fit for purpose as a matter of urgency. That's what I would say right. as a okay. can primary I bring, objective. All right. Here. Can I bring you back to the army for a minute? Sure. Right. 1914-18 war. Like, how many junior officers were killed? Massive numbers of them. The, the percentage was huge of junior officers because these first, second lieutenants who were in charge of a platoon or whatever the heck it is, blew a whistle over the top. They felt they had to go over the top first in order that the men would follow. It is a fundamental principle of army, of football teams, of anything you name that the leaders lead. And where there is poor leadership, you get poor results. Yeah, I, w I would agree. I mean, you, just as you say that, you remind me of a fellow West Needman. He was the first man to get a Victoria Cross. He was a young second lieutenant, as you've described, in the retreat from Mons. Morris Pease was his name. And why he was decorated was he stayed behind with a, a team of machine gunners 
to uh, stymie the German advance. And uh, he kept operating the machine gun when all his men were wounded until he himself was killed. Now, that kind of leadership, is it's, it, it's basic, but it's extreme, but it's inspirational. I'm not saying there are individual guard officers, ranks of inspector, superintendent that I've met in the course of my work that have that capability and inspirational leadership. But I do think where the Army benefits more is that there is a culture of leadership training uh, for all ranks that has been embedded into the Army uh, because of the heritage it has along the lines you've uh, uh, outlined. I think our police force needs to take examples from other police forces in embedding a leadership a junior leadership culture and a senior management culture in terms of training and ethos. I don't think we have that. I think that largely happens uh, according to the individuals who rise through the ranks. And I don't think it has been helped down through the years uh, for the proximity of the Guardian government uh, to get ahead. In other words, if you want to get beyond inspector or so, you really do need to be Uh cultivating your political skills. And that needs to change. Maybe a step forward in that will be some of the reforms that will come from the the current Charlton inquiry. Maybe the divestment of certain aspects of state security from the Gardaí, not not all, I would add, but but certain things, might allow the Gardaí then focus on reforms by being able to bring in officers, senior officers from other jurisdictions who could um, allow for best practice that has been tried in other areas to be tried here. All right, thank you so much. Declan Parr, security analyst, on that issue. Uh, it, 1.5 million fake tests is a shocking display of ill-discipline at all levels, says the listener, a lot more uh, besides. But coming up next, uh, we've got Congressman Bruce Morrison uh, to talk about uh, President Trump's uh, attempt to deport uh, illegal children that were, and many of them now adults. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. I'm joined now by Congressman Bruce Morrison, best known to Irish people, of course, for the Morrison visa. But uh, it also gives him a special place in terms of his knowledge of uh, migration to the United States, whether legal or illegal. The reason I asked the congressman, the former congressman, to join me, of course, is because President Trump, much to the chagrin of his predecessor, President Obama, is proposing to deport a substantial number of people Um, for whom the uh, acronym DREAMERS has been used. Congressman Morrison, welcome to the programme. Always glad to be here, George. Uh, Explain DREAMERS to people in Ireland and me who really don't know what they are. Well, there are about 11 million uh, individuals in the United States in unauthorized status, that is, people who came uh, or stayed illegally. Uh, And of that group, some significant number, at least 800,000, probably more, were brought here uh, by their parents when they were still children, under the age of 16. And those are the DREAMers, and the DREAMer name comes from the... uh, the acronym, as you said, from the legislation originally proposed um, 15 years ago to give them legal status because they really were innocent of of the decision to to come uh, outside the rules. And in order to get benefits, they would have to be law-abiding, and they'd either have to go to school or go to work or go to the military. So um, generally speaking, most people have thought this is a sensible thing to do. These people really 
uh, are Americans in every way except uh, the legal way, and they really are not at fault okay. for their status. Thanks for that. That's great. I got it now. Um, now, the next thing is President Trump intends to deport them. Now, we'll talk in a minute whether he means that or not, but let's assume he does. Is this cruel, as President Obama suggests? Well, it's more than cruel. It's also stupid. Uh, there's nothing to be gained. These aren't people who, uh, you know, you teach a lesson that people shouldn't uh, break the rules, but these people were too young when this happened to have broken the rules in their own mind. So as a deterrence, it doesn't make sense. These are people where 80 or 90 percent are currently employed. They're contributing to the economy. They're getting educations. They're assisting the military. Everything they're doing is what people would want them to do. Those people who are, you know, acting out won't get the benefits of the Dreamer program as it exists or as it's proposed okay. to Congress. Well, so is he no going benefit is right. the bottom line. Is he going to do it? Well, he's trying to um, have it both ways, to please his base by saying he's going to be tough, but kicking the ball to Congress and saying, you guys fix it. Who knows what he's going to do? Whoever knows what he's going to do. Yeah, but with respect to your former profession, because, of course, you're now uh, the the Morrison Public Affairs Group, with respect to your former profession, um, politicians do say things that mean something else. Well, that happens sometimes. I try not to do that most of the time, now or then. But the fact is that... um, I don't think he really wants to be in, a, in, in the image of having these people kicked out of the country, but a notice was sent to the Congress by the White House that said the next six months should be used by the Dreamers to get themselves out of the country. So while he's tweeting, he'll look at it again in six months. At the same time, his own people are telling the kids to get out. What about the intervention of President Obama, are you, irrespective of political party, um, do you think former presidents should intervene? Well, former presidents should be judicious. Uh, President Obama has had plenty of opportunities to be outraged over the things that have been said about him by the Trump administration. I think he's been um, very limited in his comments, but here he feels very strongly, and I certainly agree with him, that this was not an unconstitutional action and that it was a smart action, and reversing it is dumb on both grounds. Okay. Um, the, the issue, though, I think you said 11 million, did you? 11 million, no, 11 million is the total number no, no, of people I who are that, yeah. 11 million total, yeah. That's right, 800,000 yeah. have gotten the DACA work card. Yeah, no, I, I got that, but I was my mind was jumping ahead of my, my tongue. Um, 11 million you're talking about don't have status. Now, people like you, coming from your background politically and your generosity of spirit and all that sort of thing, kind of say, look, 11 million isn't bad. There's 300 million of us over here. Uh, that's okay. Whereas there's another group of people, mostly who voted for President Trump at the election, who say, it doesn't matter whether there's 11 of them or 11 million of them. They're illegal, so get them out of here. Well, the the real issue is, is this going to happen again in the future? Um, and fixing the immigration system so the people who come uh, and stay are the people who are supposed to be here, that's a worthy goal. What you do about people who've been here 5, 10, 15, 20 years, yes, they're illegal, but they're They're part of our country now as a practical matter. So uprooting them 
We're not talking about criminals. Everybody thinks criminals should be deported. But those people who are otherwise law-abiding and who are productive, the country gains nothing by spending billions to get them out. It gains something by integrating them into our communities in legal as well as practical ways. But is it conceivable? Because, I mean, that you turn around and there have been amnesties before. So, I mean, is America going to just uh, sort of have rolling amnesties? Because it's it, it, when you think about America and its porous borders, um, north and south, well, particularly south, obviously, um, it's always going to have this problem. So it's going to be faced with repetitive amnesties. Well, first of all, the, the last amnesty uh, was o- over 30 years ago. Okay. So it's not rolling amnesties. And I agree with those people who think we should make the system better to make people leave when they're supposed to leave when they come and not to come if they're not permitted to come. That's a worthy goal. But past mistakes are not remedied by just getting mad and getting even. They're remedied by using your brain. Yeah. Now, what about um, the the situation of America generally in 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 its current form? What we're seeing is an extraordinary division in America now. Uh, uh, is that a division that you haven't seen? Not a Trump division, I hasten to add, really, although it is part of that. But there is seems to be a general division between ordinary Americans, almost, between uh, Democrats and Republicans. And, and have you seen that kind of division in your time in America? It's certainly gotten worse. The polarization is much worse, and there's lots of things that contribute to it. Um, the way we pay for our elections, the way the social media operate, um, all those things. And Trump himself, as a personality, is one of the most divisive presidents we've ever had. So the combination of these things is making things worse. Somebody, uh, you know, Obama ran from the beginning as a unifier, and when he was first elected, he was a unifier, but uh, Republicans decided that, um, that, that they couldn't go along with anything that he was proposing, and they didn't, and that added to the polarization. So we have a real polarization problem. We need leaders who don't think that's a good idea rather than leaders who think that's wonderful because it helps them in the short run. But somebody said to me recently that if Trump ran as a presumably well, for a second term, that you could, he could actually win on the basis that the polarization in America is such that the Democrats couldn't get the numbers to elect their candidates. Well, I think if he runs for re-election, he'll lose. But I think that it's not that it's a, you know, automatic and he's going to lose for sure. It will be a real election. We have an election before that, a, a, a midterm election for Congress in 2018. What happens in that election will tell you a lot about where the politics are. All right. Now, I want to stay with this because, you know, the great thing, if America catches a cold, we all sneeze over here. And so we're deeply worried about this. Apart from the fact there's a ton of us over there anyway of various generations, as you well know, uh, living in, in America. Um, I, I've been in every state in the USA apart from North and South Dakota and I've seen people of all kind of colors and creeds and, and, and political views. 
the people who vote for Trump in, 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 I suppose if you take the whole sort of middle America thing, where, when you look at the map, uh, Democrats are coastal and the Republicans are in the middle. They're very good, hard working, invariably God fearing people. Well, first of all, you should go to South Dakota. I was just there, and western South Dakota is fantastic. But let me move on and say, I don't think that, that anybody should be saying, you know, the Democrat, the people who vote Democratic are better people and the vote Republican or vice versa. Uh, obviously, politics is about what you think is the right answer. We should have debates about that, but you shouldn't hate the people who disagree with you. Uh, that's a problem we seem to be developing, which is very, very destructive of a democracy and of the country. I, I think the fact is Democrats have failed in many ways to talk to and be um, understanding of a lot of the parts of the country which are different from the coastal regions. That's a challenge to Democrats. I don't think this is about, you know, blame the Republicans and, and say somehow it should change. People who want a unified country have to listen to the people who disagree. It's easy to listen to the people who agree with you. So we have a real challenge as a Democrat. I think we have a real challenge. I think President Obama was up to the challenge. I think in large part because he was the first black president, he suffered from the racism that is out there, because there is racism out there. And he also was attacked very unfairly about whether he was a Muslim or whether he had a, was born in America, all those kinds of attacks. And I think his ability to unify, which you know is where he started with his great speech in 2004, I think that that was undermined. I think we have to go back and look for leaders who okay. try again to bring the country together. Last time we spoke, your leg was up on a cushion because you couldn't walk. Are you back at the tennis? I am back at the tennis, and uh, I'm, I'm, uh, to say I'm all better would probably not be true because I probably never get to that great state of being all better. But I'm much better, and I thank you for remembering, George. All right. Thank you very much. Congressman Bruce Morrison, uh, just every word he speaks is fantastic, and uh, we have him on perhaps all too rarely. Next, Deirdre Cullen of the CSO makes numbers talk, shedding some light on Ireland's trade north and south. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.